Well, the late historian David McCullough once said that, quote, a nation that forgets its past can function no better than an individual with amnesia. A nation that forgets its past can function no better than an individual with amnesia. History is significant, friends, because it tells us why we are where we are. It tells us how, not only that, why we are where we are. If we're careful with history, we'll also learn some of its lessons so as to get us where we need to be. And so it is with this burden that God has given us the book of Kings to help us understand why God's people found themselves exiled out of God's place. So that by its lessons, we may choose ourselves a better way. So that we might choose Christ. As Christ, of course, as in every book, he is at the core of this book. Learn from the past that we might make better decisions for the future. That's what the book of Romans, that's what the book of Peter is saying that the Old Testament is about. Look to Christ and look to the lessons of the time and the past. So this morning we're going to do that. Big idea this morning, fairly simple. Idolatry deforms, Christ reforms. What name are you following? Idolatry deforms, Christ reforms. What name are you following? Take a look down there at 2 Kings 21. We're getting to the end, guys. We only have a couple more weeks in this book. And right out of the gate there in 2 Kings 21, verse 1, we learn of Manasseh, a guy who had the longest rule in that southern kingdom of Judah, some 55 years. And at the same time, this long rule in Judah is among the most evil of all the kings of Judah. So if you've been following closely, you'll know that the southern kingdom hasn't always had bad kings like the north has. We've had some bad ones, but we've had a few good ones. Like, for instance, last week, we studied the person of the king of Hezekiah. And Manasseh is Hezekiah's son. And Manasseh is the worst. We see that in verse 2. He, his practices were of the same despicable essence as the nations the Lord drove out when he brought Israel into the land. The Israelites were given this land that they were dwelling in. They were given this land years before this because, in part, because of the covenant God made with Abraham. But the other reason that they were given this land is so that they, Israel, would be used as an instrument of God's judgment on the evil Amorites. You can go back later and see that in Genesis 15. God makes a promise in Genesis 15 that years later he would drive out the Amorites. And so this explains why we have this comparison of Israel to the people there in the land. The author is telling us that Manasseh and eventually Judah was no different than the people that they drove out years before. Instead of setting up a holy people for God's glory as they were intended to do, set apart from the world, uh, Israel and Judah wound up becoming just like them. But that's not all. They not only became like those people that were in the land, they became worse than them. Slide down to verse 19 of 2 Kings 21. After quoting the Lord's promise from 2 Samuel 7, it says, But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. A couple sentences later, take a look at verse 11. Same words. They did more evil than the Amorites before them. So guys, this would be like, Uh, wiping out a crime-ridden neighborhood, sending all the criminals off to prison, 
and then handing the community over to a new people for free. And you give them new schools, you give them new houses, you give them new resources. They didn't have to do anything, only to have those same people eventually wind up being just like the people they drove out, if not worse. And what makes all of this even more worse is that God just didn't give them just new houses and new libraries and new schools. He gave them himself. His own presence, his own law, his own priests, his own prophets. It's hard to imagine a scenario where this could have been any worse. And yet again, as the New Testament teaches us about the Old Testament, this is here for our instruction, for the new covenant, for the church's instruction that we might endure and not lose hope. And so let's dig in a little bit more. How did Israel get here? How did, I should say, Judah in particular, how did they get here? And the answer is clear. They got here by idolatry. Idolatry is treasuring anything above God. You can see that there. You can see that idolatry that got them there in verse 2. They took on the worships of the gods that were around them and made it worse. And then made it worse. And you say, okay, Nathan, well, what what exactly did that idolatry look like? That's a good question. That's what the author answers next. Verse 3. Manasseh basically goes down the street to Home Depot and rebuilds all those idolatrous altars that his dad, Hezekiah, had torn down. And as if that isn't bad enough, look at verses 4 and 5. Look where they put those altars. Look where they constructed those altars. Verse 4 and 5, they put them right inside the temple complex, which is where God's presence was said to dwell. And apparently they spent a lot of time at Home Depot because they not only rebuild these idolatrous altars, they also build an Asherah. Think of like a some sort of godlike figure, like a Buddha figure, a figure of Mary, something like that. They build something, this Asherah figure, this image to worship. And look at verse 7. Look where they put it. They also put it inside the temple complex. Right next to where God's presence was supposed to dwell specially. Friends, it's one thing to cheat on a spouse and kind of do that out and about at other people's houses and hotels. It's another thing to bring your adultery inside your own home where your spouse lives and do that adultery right in front of their face. And that's exactly what Manasseh does. And I want you to notice in both 4 and 7 where they're talking about the temple there, notice how they're bringing this idolatry into the temple. Notice how both of those in those quotations about this temple was where God's name was said to dwell. Name there means reputation or presence. It's far, far, far more than this. But the Lord is saying, I I planted my flag there. I put my headquarters there. I put my name, I put my presence there. And that's where God's enemies moved right in. Right there, we might say, in the Lord's bedroom. And it's significant to note both of those quotations in verse 4 and 7 are coming from a passage where God makes a covenant with David. Big deal. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Those quotations are coming from 2 Samuel 7. So the author, guys, knows exactly what he's doing. He's describing Manasseh's brazen idolatry as a king in Jerusalem, as a son of David. And he's quoting the passage God gave to David. God, the promise God made to David, he's quoting that, that Israel, that Judah would have a forever king in his line. 
And he's quoting this at that point to say that the exact opposite of what was supposed to be happening has happened. Judah was waiting on a king that would rule like David in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of the Lord's enemies. They were waiting on a king in the line of David who would conquer their enemies, not accommodate to them. They were waiting on a king that would represent the name of God, not the name of Asherah, not the name of idols. But that's not all that Manasseh does. Not only does Manasseh rebuild altars, not only does he construct idolatrous images and place both of these in the place where the Lord planted his name, we learn in verse 3 that he worships stars. That's the host of heaven. And verse 6, he burns his son. He also uses fortune tellers like you see today on street corners using magic to tell your future. Something similar to what we find today and horoscopes and the like. Slide down to verse 16. We see even more. We read there that he also sheds, quote, very much innocent blood. This is Manasseh's reign. And this shedding of very much innocent blood, what I'm about to tell you, friends, is not biblical. So it's just tradition. We don't know if this is true or not, but... um, We can't be certain of it. But according to tradition, this shedding of very much innocent blood included Manasseh killing God's prophets. In fact, some believe that the killing of prophets and the sawing of people in two that Hebrews 11 talks about happened during Manasseh's reign. Some believe that the sawing of two in two happened to the prophet Isaiah under the reign of Manasseh. Between the early 1930s to his death in 1953, Joseph Stalin was said to have killed more than a million of his own citizens. Or friends, Manasseh was doing that long before Stalin was. This is also not just anybody doing this. This is supposed to be the king of Judah. The one that's supposed to represent God to the world. Two more important things to note about Manasseh. Like anyone else, we also learn Manasseh's sins were not isolated. Guys, do you know that about your own sin? It's never isolated. You do something in private, it always works its way out into public every single time. Manasseh's sin was not isolated. Look at verse 11 and verse 16. We learn there that Manasseh led Judah into all these sins as well. Which is similar to what we've been learning about Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the first king of Israel, how he made Israel to sin. So we now have Manasseh making Judah to sin. And so with the church and state kind of wed together in the son of David, the king, it only makes sense that Manasseh's spiritual practices led Judah to follow him in his own practices. So Judah is now participating in this as well. So be careful, friend, who you are following. Who are you following? Who are you listening to? And just before you start thinking, well, Judah was just kind of an innocent lackey, just kind of doing whatever they were told. Well, look at verse 15. The text tells us that Judah had been doing this evil all along since they came out of Egypt. In other words, Judah's equal participation in this evil idolatry was as willful and as storied as anyone else. They were glad, in other words, to be led to these dark places. And so the whole region of Judah and Benjamin is now not only like Israel, which remember a couple weeks ago has been carted off at this point, but it seems in the land of Judah, things have gotten even worse. Judah that was set up to be sort of like heaven on earth has now become hell on earth. 
and God's presence was said to dwell in the midst of all of this. But I res- but, but remember, I said there was two things about Manasseh we need to know. The second one will shock you, as if all of these haven't done enough. In the book of Second Chronicles, which the author of this story is aware of, look at verse 17. He knows about the book of Chronicles. He knows all that's going on in Chronicles. In the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 33, we learn that Manasseh eventually is carried away to Babylon, where at some point he sees his sins and repents. Now, this reminds us that the worst of sinners are never too far from the grace of God, friends. But the reason why the author, you're probably asking, well, why didn't kings tell us that? If, uh, the reason why the author doesn't include that testimony in his account is because he wants to help us understand how Judah got to be exiled from the land in judgment. King's author is writing a little earlier than the Chronicles author. His agenda, his, his point of writing is to try to help the reader understand how Judah got out of the land. Chronicles is really trying to help you understand how they got back in. And the author here in Kings emphasizes, rightly so, the point at which Judah could no longer return. It's emphasizing that. Manasseh led them to a place so deep, so dark, so evil, so despicable, that the Lord's anger was so provoked and it demanded a response of judgment that could not be turned back from. And so as you read that judgment there in verses 10 to 15, you can see it's very severe. So here's the judgment. Because Judah had gone too far. And I want you to notice the vessel of the pronouncement of God's judgment. Do you see what it is there in verse 10? It's the prophets. In other words, it's the preaching of the word is the vessel that God uses to pronounce his judgment. And I'll read you just a taste again of that judgment. You heard Jake read it before, but just look at verse 12 where the Lord says, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. That's how awful it is. It's going to be. Now, we've talked about this a lot in our times of uh, the book of Kings, but uh, just to emphasize again, friends, if God is holy, then he cannot maintain his holiness without also maintaining his justice, which means he must inflict a punishment that fits the crime. To do otherwise would be for God to cease being God, cease being holy. And all of us sort of instinctively know that a punishment has to fit the crime, Right. If, if, if Solon, for instance, were to appear before a court and the judge were to say, ah, don't worry about it, I'll forgive you, and slide it under the carpet, we would all go, no, 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 that's unjust, that's wrong. Or if the judge were to give them kind of a light penalty to Stalin, we would all say that was wrong. We all know that justice has to be served for evil. We all know that an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Manasseh has done great evil to the God of the universe. And so here, God shows his holiness. He shows his worthiness by inflicting a just judgment upon Judah. And again, all of it stems from Manasseh's reign when he crossed that line that could not be retraced. You'll see this uh, next week as we look at this amazing turnaround from the King Josiah. It's one of the highlights of the Old Testament, but the depth of evil that Manasseh led Judah into would not negate the Lord's promise to bring judgment upon them. So you're going to see Josiah is going to bring all kinds of reform, repentance even. However, the Lord still insists that he will bring that judgment. Just flip the page to 2 Kings 23, 26. Even after Josiah's reform, the Lord says, still... The Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath 
by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And then notice, look there in verse 23, 26. You'll notice another quotation about the name of God from 2 Samuel 7. We've seen the Lord be quick to showing mercy, right, to evil kings. Y'all remember that? Back King Ahab that was awful. He showed repentance. The Lord showed him mercy. And so this tells you how wicked Manasseh and Judah's idolatry was. So great that even after Josiah's reform and Manasseh's repentance, the Lord said, you've crossed the line. You've got to be dealt with. And as we will see in two weeks when we finish up the book of Kings, the final lines of Kings show us Judah leaving the land in exile. That's how the book will end. Thus completing the author's intentions of showing us that the Lord is king and he will not share his glory with another. And at the same time, explaining why God's people lost the land. In verses 19 to 25 of 2 Kings 21, we read of Manasseh's son, Amon, who only reigns two years, but he also is a wicked king. He is assassinated by his own servants, and to our great surprise, the people put up another son in the line of David. And I say great surprise because the last two kings in the line of David had been terrible. And yet they still chose to prop up a king in line of David, King Josiah. This guy is amazing. You are not going to want to miss seeing what he does next week. But we return here to Manasseh's reign here in Judah. And we ask the question, what's the takeaway here? What do we we learn from Manasseh? What do we learn from Judah's idolatry? What's the instruction the author would have us to learn from so that we would learn to endure and not lose the hope of the gospel? Two things. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, which I think is the point of the author. The first thing that we learn is this cautionary tale that I'm calling the story of sin. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is the story of the Savior. We'll come to that in a minute. First thing is the story of sin. Start there. How does sin work? How does idolatry work? What does it do? How does it sort of guide us in and get to the place where Judah found themselves? This is clearly the cautionary tale that the author wants us to walk away with. He wants to warn us from winding up just like Manasseh and Judah. And if you look carefully, you can see how the story of sin or idolatry plays out. Once again, guys, as we've said so many times through this series, nobody falls out of bed and decides to turn out like Manasseh or Judah. Nobody just does this, wakes up one day and starts doing it. Nobody wakes up out of their bed and starts killing babies, worshiping stars, and moving idols into the Lord's bedroom. Nobody just wakes up and does that. It's a slow fade. Some of you are in the middle of that fade right now, and you know it. Some of you are in the middle of that drifting, and you don't know it. But in one way or another, though the Lord keeps his own all the way to the end, all of us are susceptible to this drift that Judah experienced. It begins in verse 2 with that same theme that we've been hearing time and again in recent weeks. The story of sin and idolatry, it begins with conforming to the patterns of worship around you. Manasseh participates in the practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. So Manasseh does not participate in the despicable practices of our own day, in our own time. Nor does he participate in the despicable practices of, say, 19th century Morocco or Japan. No, 
They participate in the despicable practices of the nations that were there before them, that the Lord drove out. Friends, the evil one and our own sinful appetites are preyed upon by the gods that are around us. That's how the slide towards exile begins. Living without the armor of God and then letting our consciences get blunted to where eventually our hearts are owned by an idol. I cannot emphasize this enough, guys. We are not primarily thinking things. We are primarily loving things. If you ever wonder why there's this gap that exists between what you believe and what you do, it's because you're not emphasizing where your heart is. We're not primarily thinking things, but loving things. And the story of sin is by letting the idols around us here in Washington, D.C., go undetected in our hearts. There are gods around us every day, not aiming at our minds, aiming at our hearts, discipling us every single day. That's the first chapter of the story of sin that leads towards exile, adopting the patterns of worship around you. second chapter of the story of sin is then participating in the forms of worship of the patterns of the gods around us. Participating in the forms of worship. So you can see that there in Manasseh rebuilding the idolatrous altars that Hezekiah torn down. You can see it in his building images, in, uh, in his worshiping the stars like people do today, again, with horoscopes. And so this is a significant thing to note, friends. We do not tend to adopt the pat- We not only tend to adopt the patterns of worship around us, but it's also critical to note that it's impossible to not participate in some worship. That's true of everybody on planet Earth. It's impossible to not participate in some form of worship. Let me give you an example of this. I'm sure some of you have seen some of those yard signs in our neighborhood around us. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have those in your front yard or on your window where it says, in this house we believe. And there's things like science is real and love is love and these kinds of things. Now, friends, this basically is the same thing as our church's statement of beliefs. They're not any different. So in the same way, we have a statement of belief, whereas we said, in this church, we believe, and we list it all out. It's the same thing. You can't get away from worship. The most rabid of atheists might reject God, but they don't reject worship as evidence, and they're giving themselves to some ideology. We can't help it. We are inherently moral beings that believe some kind of morality that should be embodied. We construct these kind of forms and participate in these forms of worship. Somebody may deconstruct one form of worship, but all they're going to do is reform some other kind of worship. Everyone does that because everyone is inherently a worshiper. We're made that way. And so the gods around us, whoever or whatever they might be, begin to construct a kind of statement of beliefs and and, and worship and practices that go along with it. So it's inescapable. Worship is sometimes codified and institutionalized like it is here. Oftentimes, in a place like ours, it is more subversive, harder to see, less institutionalized, more personalized, but still there. It has its own set of beliefs. It has its own set of practices. It even has its own set of uh, gatherings. Because having been created in the image of God, we as human beings, we can't help but worship. We were made to worship. As an eagle is made to fly and a fish is made to swim, we as human beings were made to worship. 
The evil one and our own appetites are co-opted by the gods around us and then participate in forms of worship. That's step one and two. Step three in the story of sin is to have that object of worship materialize or become established. This thing, this form of worship eventually becomes established as to what it is. It becomes a god. Everyone's forms of worship are built to serve a particular god or image of a god. And you can see that here in Manasseh's creating images of Asherah and his worshiping of the host of heaven. In our own context, again, it's more difficult to tease out. But since in the gods that are around us today, in our own context, we are fed a steady diet of expressive individualism, we should expect that the image of the god around us should ultimately materialize in some way, shape, or form into ourselves as the established god. The establishment around us will be happy to let us use Jesus or the Bible or the church. Fine, as long as we ultimately are the object of worship in the end. In this way, we do exactly what Romans 1, 22 and 23 do. Where it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. See, we look upon with disdain. Uh, Manasseh for worshiping stars and burning children. We look at that and sort of say that he's foolish. But while these practices are despicable, the essence of idolatry is very much the same in our own lives. We too can claim to be wise and exchange the glory of the immortal God for worshiping images of mortal man. I'll give you some examples. That's really easy to see in the participation of porn. It's easy to see in the Instagram lifestyle, right? Wherein we look at these things and long to become these things or enjoy these things for our own pleasure. But those images, again, are just forms of worship. The object of worship in the end is to serve me, who is the ultimate established God in the end. Watch what you want to watch. Be who you want to be. Be your authentic self. And the authentic self is whatever's inside of you. That's your truth, as we're told. Friends, this is no less religious than Christianity that says to conform to the one outside of yourself. Conform yourself to Christ. The difference in the two is only directional. One looks in, the other looks out. But both are being religious. Both have objects of worship, either Christ, Allah, or ourselves. These are drastically different objects of worship, to be sure. Drastically different forms or creeds, but all are objects of worship. Pastor Tim Keller has helpfully taught us that, quote, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than it is to claim that your way of thinking about all religions is right. They're equally narrow. And so the way it works, the story of sin, the story of idolatry is conform to the patterns around you, uh, then begin to participate in those forms of worship. Third, then that form of worship will ultimately terminate in the establishment of some God. The fourth step is embodied in the first step. The fourth step you might even say, is the first step. And that is, you reject the Creator, who's blessed forever. You can see that in Manasseh and Judah in two ways. First, look at verse 9. They don't listen to God. The second is the opposite of that. They do listen to the idols around them. In In this way, they reject God, the God of the Bible. Israel was warned about these practices in advance before going into the land. They were told about how great God was. They were told uh, what he was like. They were told how to follow him. They were were told how to enjoy a good life with him. 
But they didn't listen to him or his servants, and they did listen to the gods around them, therefore rejecting God. So we don't know how this idolatry always begins. It begins in all kinds of different ways, but in the end, it'll eventually work its way to just rejecting God altogether. It might take a year, it might take you 10 years, but that's sort of where it goes. And this led Manasseh to doing the unthinkable and moving idolatry right into the Lord's bedroom, right into the temple. And so the story of sin, it doesn't listen to to the Lord. It does listen to the gods around us. It forms worship practices uh, towards an established God, an image that we desire, that is. And that God will in some ways be a trade for creation, Romans teaches us, and a rejection of the Creator. And that God could be a, a, an either an institutionalized kind of God or a God that's sort of organic or constructed, one of our own making. And yet after these four steps are completed, what you have is the result or the consequence of idolatry. And that is deformation or death or destruction. You see that there in the horrendous testimony of Manasseh burning his own flesh and blood. In verse 6. You also see the deformation or judgment that idolatry eventually brings about in verse 18, where we learn of Manasseh's death. We also see this in Ammon's death in verse 24. Friends, death is so common that it's easy to forget that death is a judgment for sin. Romans 5 makes this clear, right? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Every time you go to a funeral, you see this. Whether they were really old or young, it all just doesn't seem right because it wasn't supposed to be that way. But it came into the world because of our own idolatry. But not only do we, have, we see deformation or judgment in Manasseh himself, remember his sin spreads out into all of Judah. We, are, we see how idolatry breeds the judgment of death into all of Judah. Look at verse 13 and 14 where God brings this judgment upon them because of their idolatry. This is that death, this deformation. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, and I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil. So the Lord justifiably forsakes or hands over the one that he's loved. He gives them over to the passions of their flesh so that they were so demanding to follow. And in the face of that giving them over, judgment comes, death comes deformation comes. In the end, when we exchange the creator for creation, God does the scariest thing imaginable. He gives us what we want. And that results in exile from the God of life to the place of death. Romans 1, 24, 25. God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Just gave them up. Here, just, you want this? Fine. You can have it. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God eventually just says, go ahead. That's what we call his passive wrath, his passive judgment. Sometimes there's active judgment. Get out of the land. Sometimes there's passive judgment. Fine. Just go ahead. No more Mercy for me. You just can have what you want. Ultimately, it ends in deformation and death. Friends, this is not only the story of Manasseh and Judah. This is the story of the world. Because it's the story of sin that is pervasive in the world. 
It begins with adopting the patterns of worship around us, and it eventually results in our being exiled from life and into eternal death. That's what Judah deserved. That's what Manasseh deserved. Frankly, that's what you and I both deserve. We all deserve this. I deserve that. You deserve that because we've all done this. Every one of us. The question is, will you go on worshiping your own name or will you do as Manasseh eventually did and repent and follow the name of the Lord? But friend, you need to know if you don't do that, if you intend to keep going your own way, then you have exactly what you have here. The Lord will give you up to those base desires and he will lead you outside of the heavenly Jerusalem and you will experience the punishment of eternal death. You have to bear that wrath. And that's God being just. Remember, friends, we talk about this a lot. On the door going into heaven, it reads, no one deserves this. The door going into hell says, everyone deserves this. And so it's my hope, friend, that having seen the story of sin and what the result is, that you not only understand why things are in the world today, but also maybe you would understand a little bit more why things are going on even in your own life. It's my hope, it's our hope as a church that you would see yourself in Manasseh or Judah in some way. This is why the Bible was written, to help us learn from these mistakes, that we would turn away from deformation and turn to Christ, that we would be reformed in Him. That's why it's here. And so turn, friend, turn. Walk away from idolatry into the Savior. And that's how we'll finish our time, by considering Him. We've said that the story of sin is to deform and to destroy. The story, though, of the Savior seeks to do the exact opposite. It seeks to reform, that we might live. One of the most important questions, friend, that you could ever ask yourself is this. How does sinful men dwell with the holy God? Write that sentence down and think about that and pray about that question. How how does sinful men dwell with the holy God? See, how can that possibly happen without contaminating a holy God, right? You see this in a pure glass of water, put one tiny little drop of poison in it, it contaminates the whole thing. How does sinful men dwell with the holy God? Because again, the reality is all of us are Manasseh. We may not have burned our children or worshipped the stars, but we have all exchanged the truth about God for a lie, every single one of us. We have all worshipped and served the creature and not the creator who is blessed forever. We have all taken idols and moved them into the chamber of our hearts where God's name was intended to dwell. And so how can any one of us escape the judgment? And not only that, how do we not just escape the judgment? How do we grow up in the life of God? That is the question, friends, that Jesus Christ was sent to answer. And that is at the heart of the book of Kings. In Christ the King, God was reconciling the world back to himself. And he did that by Christ coming into the world, this is amazing, to be a curse for us that believe. Friends, this is why, if you're not a Christian, why do you Christians take the cross so seriously? This is why. Because God sent his name into the world in the form of his son. And this name never sinned as Judah did, as Manasseh did. This king was the faithful king. This king, unlike all of these kings we see here that didn't obey the law, Jesus does obey the law. He says, I come to fulfill the law, and he does. People talk about the resurrection being amazing. It's amazing that Christ never disobeyed the law of the Lord. 
And because he didn't, as fully God and fully man, Jesus uniquely is able, a single death, able to atone for the sins of all that would believe because he was perfectly righteous. He is able to go to the cross, go outside of the land, outside of the city of Jerusalem, and receive the curse of the sin of Nathan Knight and of you that believe. Take that punishment. Take that uh, judgment that we see here in Second Kings 21 that we'll learn about more in the coming weeks. He takes that curse on himself. He takes Nathan Knight's punishment. He takes it on his back. And then he transfers his righteousness, counts it to a sinner like me by grace through faith. This is the gospel. And this gospel we know is true because unlike everyone else that dies and stays dead, Jesus rose and stays alive. Defeating sin and death. And so uh, this is what you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have insane amounts of grace to sinners. To put Christ in the book of 2 Kings 21, Jesus became Manasseh and Jerusalem so that we who believe might come to God. No, friend, the Father does not burn the Son in idolatrous worship as Manasseh does. The Son, Jesus, goes willingly, not to appease the wrath of a false and fickle God, but to pay the ransom note for sinners and triumph over death in the resurrection so that sinners could be counted righteous. Nothing like what Manasseh is doing to his son. Look down there at verse 13 and 14 and switch out the word Jerusalem for Jesus. And you get the gospel. You want me to read it to you? And I will stretch over Jesus the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jesus as one wipes a dish, wiping him and turning him upside down. And I will forsake the son of my heritage and give him into the hands of his enemies. And he shall become a prey and a spoil to all his enemies. Friends, that's exactly what happened at the cross. And when he was crucified again outside the city of Jerusalem, exiled as it were, Christ was judged so that we who are in him don't have to be. And in his doing so, we who are in Christ might not have to face full and final judgment because Christ was judged for us. And so now, because he defeated judgment in the resurrection and brought the sacrifice, Jesus took his body, the sacrifice, the true lamb, he brought it up into the true temple, into heaven. And because he did, he's able to send the Holy Spirit to go and take up residence, no longer made in temples made by man, but in temples made by God, into the hearts of men that believe. (laughs) This is amazing. He's able to send that Spirit into hearts of us believe it. So we find this in the gospel. God now puts his name in temples made with his own hand. In creation, we who are in Christ are a new creation, daily being conformed to the name that is above every name that has been deposited into our hearts. So just think about the gospel, guys. It's exactly the opposite of idolatry. Remember that story of sin? The story of the Savior is exactly the opposite. Manasseh conformed to the patterns of worship around him. In the gospel, Christ conformed to the patterns of worship in heaven. Right? Manasseh constructed forms of worship centers and building new altars. In the gospel, Christ built true forms of worship in the hearts of his people. 
Manasseh submits to creation in worshiping stars. In the gospel, Christ submits to the Father who is blessed forever. Manasseh rejects the creator and doesn't listen to the law of God, but instead builds idols and moves them into the house of God. But in the gospel, Christ listens to the law of God since he was made, the word made flesh and his name moves into the hearts of believers made by God. Manasseh cultivates death and destruction. In the gospel, Christ cultivates eternal life by entering into death for us who believe. It's amazing. Central to 2 Kings 21, friends, is the defamation of the name of God in the temple. Central to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the name of God moving into the world through Christ. He came to reform, Jesus did. He came to reform all that sin had deformed. We see in the Old Testament, man, no matter how hard he tries, can't do it. Which is why God sent his name into the world to do it for. And we see that this is at the heart of Christ himself right before he goes to the cross in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. This idea of the name consciously trying to be formed in the world. It's conscious in his mind right before he goes to the cross. Look at John 17, 6. Jesus says, I have manifested, y'all say it with me, your, one more time, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. I am no, and he slides down verse 11 to 12. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your, yeah, which you have given me. That they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your, which you have given me. See, God gave Israel the temple to display his name, his character, his presence, his holiness, his glory to the world. And they moved idols into it. God judged, but God didn't give up on his people. He loved them to the end. And so instead, he sent his name into the world in the form of his son, who was crucified for sinners who believe, and he keeps them as he shares his name with us, church family. There's a reason why we're called Christians. You know what Christian means? Little Christ. We're his name. Just like a husband gives his name to his wife. So the husband of Christ gives his name to us as we are united to him. In Christ, God is reconciling not just the world, but a people to himself. And so God has given you his name, Christian. May we never enter the story of sin and move idols into the bedroom chambers of our hearts. But instead, may we grow up into the name that has been given to us. May we grow up into Christ. May we conform to Christ, our heavenly reward. God has given his son to you, Christians, so that we might not conform to the patterns of the world around us, but instead conform to the patterns of heaven to construct a true and holy worship since he knows that we're going to worship something. He made us to worship him, so he made that possible for you in his son. And so Restoration Church, look at me. Do you know what God is doing? Do you know what he's doing in us? You know what he's doing in your life. I know your life is crazy. Mine is too. Maybe not crazy as yours, some of yours, but it's crazy. Do you know what he's doing? Do you know what he's doing in you personally? Do you know what he's doing in us as a church? Do you know what he's doing? He's growing us up into his name. That we would display his glory to a world in need. That's what he's doing in all of these things. His word is given to you to reform you and I. For all the ways that we have been deformed in idolatry. 
That's what he's doing in gospel ministry. That's the work of the church to slowly and painfully restore us into his name, into his image, so that we might be as we were created to be, so that we might image God. So that's what we're doing, guys, when we talk about evangelism and discipleship and counseling on Wednesday nights, when we talk about reading the word and meditating on it and praying it and meeting up with each other. All of that is just another way to say these are vessels, these are pathways, these are ways in which God intends you to grow up into his name, the glory of his good name. And so the degree to which you give yourself to these spiritual disciplines is the degree to which you will be raised up in that name. The degree to which you keep your distance from it is the degree to which you keep yourself from reformation, restoration. And we just look at the life of Christ and we're compelled, aren't we? I mean, look at his life. Is that not the restoration you want to have? I mean, he loved the rich and the poor. He loved all that was true and hated all that was false. He was merciful, kind, patient, compassionate. He wasn't indulgent, but giving. He healed the sick, raised the dead. If you're bored by the life of Christ, you don't understand it, frankly. He's amazing. He is life. He's the second Adam that we are made to live up into. And so because of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, now spirit is dwelling through the church. Look at Ephesians 3, 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand he wasn't surprised by Israel? Christ was always the plan. And so that's the motive Jesus has given us. Christian, know that. That is the motive behind his call to tell you to put off idolatry and put on glory. Not only that you would just escape judgment, but that you would realize God's eternal purpose and display his manifold wisdom to the world. And so give yourself to Christ. Put off idolatry so that God would be glorified and your fellow man might know something of the restoration that he's doing in the world. Idolatry, friend, deforms. Christ reforms through the gospel. Which name will you follow this week? Which name have you been following? Is it deforming you or is it reforming you? I pray that all of us would give ourselves to the name that is above every name. Christ the Lord, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, We, yes we, we broken, we deeply flawed people, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of the name of Christ, be reconciled to God. May we give ourselves to his good work. Lord, we confess all the ways that we have followed Manasseh. But we thank you that you've given us the Messiah. Have mercy on us for all the ways that we have been deformed by following Manasseh. And oh God, in Christ, restore us as we follow you, Jesus, as our king. Not ourselves, not the gods that are around us, you. Because we believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that you are restoring us to the heavenly Jerusalem. 
May we give ourselves to you this week because we trust you for our lives, for our ministries, for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, for the nations. May we give ourselves into your hands that you might restore us. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.